Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Well, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Mr. Brian Moriarty. And uh, I will also remind everyone that if you're looking for investment advice, this isn't the place to get it. Uh, You should consult a licensed regulated individual in your area, but we will have wide ranging conversations here and we'll have a lot of fun. And uh, we do have Brian Moriarty from Morningstar uh, here with us today. Uh, very excited about this conversation. Um, before we uh, have Brian introduce himself, I am having a, a lovely Armagnac today. Um, I don't know about you gentlemen. Cheers. I got a little Cheers. white wine. A little Casillero del Diablo. Mm-hmm. I have to be the starter at a swim meet in an hour, so I, I, I hear it's frowned upon to be drinking in advance of officiating. But yeah. you know, next time I'll, I'll, I'll try to push that limit and, and yeah. see what they say. It's understandable. <laughs> What do you got, B? I have a sparkling water nice. because it's still on the clock, uh, and I have a two-year-old, so yeah. I need to be sharp. Always on the clock, then. Yeah, we'll never report you to <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> nobody nobody watches this show, so like it's really like not even That's happening. Right. You know, I want to I want to have a talk about you know in 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 our opening um, compliance monologue, we talk about consulting with regulated professionals in your area. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I constantly get requests for people to review portfolios that were put together by qualified regulated advisors in people's areas. And, man, if one in a hundred are thoughtful, reasonable portfolios that address somebody's... um, unique objectives and situation, then, you know, that would be an exaggeration. Is that, what are your thoughts on that? Honestly, like, are we, is the idea of being regulated advisor in in somebody's jurisdiction, a reasonable qualification? Like, can we not give people better guidance on the type of people that they might seek out to help provide advisory services on their, on their funds? Sure. Well, let's do a show on that. But rather, but rather than stealing Brian's okay, thunder, fine, fine. I want to know about about who Brian is, besides sure. my my dungeon master. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean that's taken up you know two three hours a week for the last year. That adds up. Um, no, so I've been with Morningstar since uh, January of 2013. So it'll be my eight year anniversary um, coming up in almost exactly a month. Uh, and then with the manager research team since September of 2015, which is encompassed a lot of pretty interesting um, markets, uh, loved every minute of it. So I did not intend to, uh, when I graduated from college, to join the financial industry. I wanted to work in government or public service or something like that. Um, so we can always talk about that if you guys want to, but ended up here and uh, loved every minute of it since then. That's amazing. And so what do you do at Morningstar? Sure. So I'm an associate director of the fixed income manager research team, um, which is, um, there's about 12 of us. Um, I have six analysts um, 
that I am uh, overseeing um, along with my own coverage list. And so we do manager research. We're talking to portfolio managers. We write the Morningstar analyst rating. That's that gold, silver, bronze, neutral, negative rating you see out on um, on funds. We don't um, don't have anything to do with the, the star rating, although that is a, a component of, of what we're looking at. Um, yeah, we interview portfolio managers, write the report, um, spend a lot of time looking at um, portfolios and really trying to understand uh, you know how the sausage is made, so to speak, and if uh, managers are doing a, a good job or not. How has that process changed over the years, Brian? I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if you were exposed to, you know, what things were like three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. But I, you know, I, I would imagine that that a firm like Morningstar learns from feedback from the process. So what 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 have you guys learned over the years on this? Yeah, absolutely. So at the beginning, um, manager research is, I think, technically Morningstar's second line of business. The first was packaging mutual fund data, um, which at the time when Morningstar was started in the 80s, you couldn't get consolidated fund data anywhere else. Um, after that came the research side of it. But at the beginning, it was very short, like two to three paragraphs, like can fit on a third of a page. Um, the Morningstar, what kind of one page report is what we they were known for, we were known for at the time. And that was manager research at Morningstar for a long time was this shorter report. Um, and then in the 2000s, in the early to mid 2000s, we um, expanded that into what we now know as Morningstar Manager Research, which is a much more robust report that does a deep dive on different pillars, right? The sort of four or five Ps. Um, we're currently down to three Ps um, that we are rating people, process, um, and parent. Um, we no longer rate um, performance and price, which if we're talking about evolutions, that's the big one that, that came out recently is that last year we switched to this new methodology, which cut it. We, we cut out an analyst no longer rates price and performance. Those are automated to a degree. Um, and what we're doing, what we're trying to signal with our ratings on people, process, and parent is, are they, um, are they going to be able to capture alpha that's available in a specific category. And so the higher the ratings on those three pillars that I mentioned before, what we're saying is that they are more likely, this manager is more likely, more likely to capture um, the alpha available in any given category. And it changes um, obviously from category to category. So how there, that sounds more qualitative, right? So what are some of the inputs to that, those qualitative, qualitative um, models that you guys consult as you're trying to draw up, draw conclusions um, yeah. in those three Ps? So we do, um, at the start at least, it's kind of basic what people would expect from manager research, meaning we are interviewing the portfolio managers, we're talking to, um, to the support staff, the analysts, we're collecting data from the managers. But that is a much smaller piece, um, at least in my experience, in my perspective, um, the relationship that we have with the portfolio manager is much less. It's, it's reduced compared to maybe manager research that's done at an endowment or a pension or something like that. Obviously, a big reason is that we are not, we don't have capital that we're putting to work or like those firms. Um, but we, we do those, um, have those interviews. And then after that, it's ripping apart the portfolio to understand, all right, this is what the manager told me. So if I did, they perform the way they would have expected, the way they explained it. How does that match up with the portfolio? Are there inconsistencies between the two? Right. A lot of time, a manager will say, especially in fixed income and credit, you know, oh, we don't take a lot of risk, and you know, we're trying to be defensive or whatever. And then you look at the funds yield, or they're they've got you know, mes structured products or whole business loans or something like that that does not match up at all. And so we're trying to 
understand the the what's in the portfolio and what are the expected performance patterns knowing what we know about the portfolio um and, and that's really i mean we we obviously look at you know number of analysts manager tenure manager investment all that stuff which is all components of our ratings but those are not like i'm not going to say they've got 30 years experience and 40 analysts like that's a good pro- people score that's not that's a could be a good people score but we're not just that superficial right it's what's the analyst experience in mes credit or whatever right are they churning through you know people two to three years and then they're out and gone like what are the what's going on underneath the hood we don't really care for or i should say those headline numbers that are cited often are not um that's the starting point that's not what we care about uh, at the end of the day so how do people how do firms use this research typically if you've got an institution or a, um, an advisory practice how should they look at the research that you guys produce and and um drill into the most salient um characteristics of your reports yeah. Um, so we're writing it. Our goal is to help investors make better decisions and to choose between this massive offering that they have available to them, right? The the investment universe, it's been getting smaller, but it's still really massive. And if you just go by, you know, headline numbers or returns or the marketing materials that a fund manager is putting out, um, it can be hard to, to differentiate, right? Um, or you look at funds that have, you know, two different total return bond funds, might perform similarly, and then they end up having wildly different, um, you know, underlying holdings, and the reasons they perform similarly are completely different. So, our reports are meant to highlight um, those specific points: what's going on in the portfolio, how a fund um, is expected to perform in different markets, so that investors have a much better sense of what they're buying. So, you're not going to find. Um, sometimes we might have a, a, in our reports the whole process or portfolio section might be dedicated to one or two trades or to something specific that happened that highlights bigger picture what's going on. So we are not, um, it's not a checklist report. We're not trying to tell an investor everything about every fund, but what are the most important points? What's going on? What were the big drivers of performance in certain periods? For example, March of this year um, was the big one that we really spent a lot of time understanding and, and why um, things happen the way they did, but it's not, um, you know, like I said, it's not a checklist. It's not descriptive at all. This is our opinion focused on the specific most important items that we think investors should be aware of for any given strategy. So credit has always, I've always sort of decomposed it as long rates and short a put. And depending on the grade of the credit, short a put that's out of the money, but the out of the moneyness is a function of the quality and size of the equity tranche that 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 buffers the risk to the credit holders, right? Um, is there an explicit model internally that you guys use that sort of says it's MESDED or it's or it's triple C or it's or it's you know double B minus or what have you, and then are able to price that as an option and and sort of related to some kind of OIS spreads or historical OIS spreads on that credit, um, on that credit grade relative to, to treasuries or something like that. Like what kind of models do you guys bring to bear on, on, on credit? It's always been a mystery to me how yeah. to analyze it. Um, it's, 
it's difficult and there's no good um no good answer to that so we don't have there's not we don't have one sort of master model that we're plugging this stuff into what we do instead is collect as much historical data as we can on different tranches and sectors and slices of the market and then look at um performance in different time periods so for example like an easy one i'll kind of back up to just talk about what i mean is that an easy trap for a newer analyst to fall into is a fund, you know, let's say it's the period of 2016 to 20, the third quarter of 2018, right? Some, let's say for fixed income, that was an extremely bullish period. Um, they look at a fund for that period and volatility is really low, yield is really high, sharp ratio looks beautiful. They're going to say, well, this is great. And I'm going to look at that and say, there's a problem, like there's a red flag in there. Um, it shouldn't look this good to have a sharp ratio that high. It means they're taking on, let's say, something that is less traded or thinly traded, paying off a high coupon, which gets returned or it gets backed into the, the sharp ratio. And suddenly you've got this beautiful looking investment that is actually carrying a lot of um, hidden risk or, or, or risk that, you know, is not necessarily volatility, but it's you know, gap down risk or something like that, that's going to show up in a huge sell-off, for example, in March or even the fourth quarter of 18 to a certain degree, but much more so in March. And so what we're doing is um, looking at different sectors and slices and tranches, right? So for example, CLOs, the rating spectrum for CLOs or for CRTs, credit risk transfers, something like that, and saying, all right, what's the standard deviation, the vol of these things, what's the coupon, what's the actual drawdown loss. And then we use those pieces to try to build an understanding of what a port how a portfolio might perform. And because something might be a you know small thin slice of a, of a portfolio and end up being 90% of their driving their performance up or down markets just because the um you know the skew so to speak on these things is can be massive in, in certain environments and and disappear entirely in other environments. So I'm going to throw Corey under the bus since he threw it out there, but uh, he's wondering what happened to IOFIX in March. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah. so the, I think it's a good case study anyways that, that we can kind of dig into what the value of, of digging a little deeper the way that the qualitative team at Morningstar does and, and how yeah. that might be able to add value. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was one um, pretty well known, I think um, it blew up spectacularly in March, um, the the fall was almost a straight line down on its growth of 10,000 chart to a, a massive degree. Um, and what was going on there is before that, if you cut off the, the March period and just looked at it since inception through 2019, it was just a perfect step up line um, in its growth of 10,000 chart. And it looked, it effectively the returns looked like they were auto-correlating with themselves, right? Um, and what was going on there is that that portfolio held um, at the beginning it owned a lot of um, odd lot um, sub not agency mortgages um, either junk or not rated odd lots they were buying at the beginning because then they can buy you can buy odd lots and then you can round them up or mark them up to the, the round lot position um, and they were buying stuff that even other um, sort of very legacy large non-agency investors, um, whether it's PIMCO or TCW, Double Line and so on, those investors were not buying the stuff that IOFIX was buying. And so you ended up having this beautiful return chart, uh, but then in March when liquidity disappeared completely, um, those positions were all, and they started to get outflows, they had to mark everything down 
to an extreme that I, frankly, I haven't really seen maybe in one or two other cases. Um, over time, they had also added a number of credit risk transfers or CRTs, which are issued by Fannie and Freddie. These are effectively mortgage credit beta um, issued by Fannie and Freddie that um, had never really been tested in a, a downturn. And so um, there was an overnight, um, or excuse me, over the weekend, um, they were trying to unload as much as they could to, to meet redemptions. And they ended up selling most of their CRT position because that was the more liquid of the two um, components of the portfolio. Um, and then they managed to survive through Monday. And then that same week, um, I believe on Tuesday was March 23rd or 24th, the bottom. And then they, they survived um, after the Fed stepped in. But it's one where if you had looked at the returns of this portfolio, this looks amazing. There's no risk here. It's There's no volatility. I'll put it that way. There's no volatility. And then the risk realized and investors booked massive extreme losses. Is that similar to the bank loan side of things? Um, that that is riskier than the the bank loan, or at least it the realized risk has been more extreme in this sort of mez RMBS mez mortgage credit part of the market. Um, the bank loan market is um, closer to you know between IG and, and high yield corporate credit, and so it's not going to we I wouldn't expect to see the same level of drawdowns there. It, um, the risk to the bank loan market is that rates stay low for so long, and that investors just sort of um, bleed out. Um, but I don't, I view the two as, um, I, they're pretty similar in terms of liquidity risk, right? Given that bank loans are not technically securities, they don't, um, their liquidity is challenged, especially in, in stressful markets. Um, but what happened to IOFIX was a, a really specific thing that um, we are constantly on the lookout for. We've noticed it, the things that led to that fall, any, um, fund that saw massive, massive losses in that period was most likely overexposed to um, to mortgage credit risk um, in different flavors. And that's really, especially kind of the MES structured stuff, it's always where people, um, where you can hide risk for bull markets and then the, the revealed in, in bear markets, especially liquidity challenged markets. This is what always really I struggle with in credit, where credit, it's really easy. There's a lot of innovation in credit markets, right? Think sort of CLOs and, and yep. all manner of structured and substructured um, type of um, uh, issuance. And so as every time they create a new structure, there's no history previous to when they create it. And, be, and because of that, you can go many months and, and in, in many cases, many years without being able to observe the true risk character of the structure, right? Because yeah. the the option that you've sold is very far out of the money on a condition that we haven't seen before, right? Or we haven't seen yeah. recently or is unlikely yep. to to present itself. And so I mean we don't we don't trade credit for that reason because we feel like we can't empirically measure the risk in any way. I mean, we, we certainly would acknowledge that for many markets, the biggest risk that we take is the one that's ahead of us, right? And and so the, the largest drawdown is ahead of us. And there's always risks that have not manifested yet that we need to be prepared for, right? But in credit, because of the, the number of different types of structures and the constant, again, innovation in the space, there's you, you constantly have these um, 
these structures or these types of credit with, with very short histories. And it's very easy for investors to get into trouble by just not knowing the underlying risk that they're facing. We see this in Canada. We've, see, we've seen this, that these offerings to retail investors for, for years. I mean, Mike, you go back 25 years dealing with, with individual investors in Canada, and you've got these private credit funds that for 10 years never have a down month and seem like free money to uneducated Canadian investors or inexperienced Canadian investors and advisors. And out of the blue, there's an event and now they're gated. And now there's some sort of credit waterfall that everyone's got to wait 18 months for everything to go through. And there's, you can't get your money back and you have no idea how much money you're going to get back. How do you, as a, uh, as an analyst, step into that swamp and navigate it and, and sort of put your name on the risk metrics that you're going to put out there as to help people be made aware of. It all seems like very nebulous and very hard to kind of wrap your head around and quantify. It is. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we, um, to back to your other question, why we don't have um, explicit inputs into a model of some sort like that, just because in a lot of cases we know based on a historical experience that w- even if we had a number to plug in, it's not, we wouldn't be comfortable with that number. It wouldn't be right in the, in the, um, a realized sense. And so it's, it's hard, um, frankly, and a big, that's why we spend a lot of our time, um, understanding. So for example, with CRTs, cause that's a more recent example, and I can use this as a case study for, for how we would think about it, is that CRTs were created in 2013 specifically to move the mortgage credit risk on Fannie and Freddie's books off to the individual investor or to, to investors, um, whoever they may be. And at a high level, that sounds great, right? In the sense that if I am a taxpayer um, or I'm, you know, somebody in the government, I don't want Fannie, I don't want to, you know, um, pay for Fannie and Freddie's mistakes ever again. So I'm going to move this risk off of the, their books and into the investor's books. The problem with that from the investor perspective, right, putting my investor hat on now, is that um, a lot of things. First of all, the tranches on CRTs were extremely thin. Um, so 50 basis points, 70 basis points, 150 and so on. So that's, you only need, let's say, 50 or 100 basis points of losses before your that tranche is gone. It's wiped out. That's nothing right in, in, a, in a, any sort of extended market um any sort of extended bear market and at the same time you're thinking about things where okay fanny and freddie is selling this risk off of their books to to me or the, the buyers don't you think fanny or freddie knows more about what's going on in that book than whoever they're selling it to um in the pool of mortgages um and also um the what they're selling this risk transfer item security is not actually it's a reference note to this pool of mortgages. You don't actually get any ownership of the pool of mortgages, so there's no collateral underneath it except the GSE's promise to pay. And so when you sort of run down the list of all of those features, right, we don't know how it's going to perform necessarily. We don't have any data to plug into it, but you look at all that and you're like, okay, this is eventually going to be a problem, right? And we don't know when or how. And that's just how we every anything new like that. That's and what we do. Yeah. Every investor enters into a purchase agreement with asymmetric negative information, yep. right? Like Fannie and Freddie always have an edge. Yep. They know exactly what the underlying are. They've got 
hundreds of thousands of, of data points and of portfolios with symbol, you know, similar underlying that they can use for pricing at their end. And the public markets have none of that information or much less of it and are therefore at a major disadvantage. So does the public market participant, what sort of premium do they price these at in order to overcome this major information asymmetry? Or how should we think about that? Um, in Yeah, it, it's come down a lot. So in 2013 and 14, when they were new, the premiums were huge and people who were buying them then were ended up making a ton of money. Since then, they've come down to next to nothing because now demand is huge. People want mortgage risk, right? So it, it, if you put the this period into context, at the same time as this is going on, everybody, a lot of fixed income investors were in love with consumer, right? Like the corporate balance sheets were, and eh, consumer balance sheets were just getting better and better. So over this period, more and more fixed income portfolio managers wanted exposure to the US consumer. Best way to do that is mortgage credit. And so demand was increasing at the same time as this was going on. And so they just kept pricing it tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter until it became, um, in a lot of ways, you know, uneconomic to, to buy these things, but they were still being bought. Um, and what happened is that people were um, convinced to buy these. I don't say this convinced is a loose term, but one of the, every, one of the things that everybody pointed to when they were buying these was that stress tests showed that they would have come through 2008 in flying colors, right? And that's true in the sense that the model stress test said this, but these didn't actually, right? This is a back test. These didn't exist in 2008. Um, and Who writes the stress the test? Is it Fannie and yeah. Freddie or is it, or is it Morningstar? No, we do not. Uh, it would be Fannie and Freddie along with um, any investors who have their own capabilities to do that, kind of pulling out the, the reference pools and, and plugging it in that way. Okay. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's difficult. And, and what we saw happen is that these things ended up, um, it ended up creating a pretty big bifurcation in investors where plenty of people were happy to buy these things for all the reasons that just listed. And other people were looking at these things kind of like we were like, something isn't right with that. And we're just going to kind of wait. So, yeah. So what, what, what is an investor to do then? Is that is that the is that the approach? Uh, there's you know some there's something here that's not quite right. So let's pass. Let's because at the beginning, as you point out, there was I guess pretty significant um, premium to harvest or, or return. There to was harvest. yeah. That's that's the that's what we struggle with, and, and it's what our job is is to differentiate or to identify. Okay, if you were let's say somebody was willing to buy that at launch and um, harvested that large premium. So from our perspective, when we're looking at that in a portfolio, how much did they buy? Which rating, which tranche were they buying? So we're saying, okay, you're willing to take this risk. Um, that's not a good or a bad thing on its own, but what were the, what was the decisions that went into taking on that risk and how much capital you're putting at risk? You know, are you just kind of YOLOing it or are you saying, you know what, if this goes bad, I don't, not going to lose a lot, but if it goes right, right, we're trying to like, were they, are they trying to find the asymmetric bet in this offering, whatever it, it is. Um, and that's, that's what we do. We apply that same framework to anything, right? So if somebody's buying CLOs or has been buying CLOs recently to, to tie that back to a different market that's grown by leaps and bounds, um, you know, are they buying triple B, double B CLOs that are going to 
the yield is huge, but they're going to become immediately illiquid in any sort of sell-off and, and cause huge problems? Or are they triple B or excuse me, triple A, double A, single A, and so on, where you're getting a much better um, sort of risk reward offering regardless of the outcome, right? So we don't want to say don't take any risk because then you'll never earn any return, but rather what's the are you taking risk, I guess, safely and trying to pick your spots a little bit better? Is- Do we trust the rating agencies? I mean, they've they've obviously let us down in many prior crises. What has changed at the rating agencies to allow us to provide them with, with greater credibility? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know if anything really has changed, at least not that I've seen, right? I mean, I think it's there's no good one for that um we use the credit rating agencies we also use um um, we look at the yields for what it's worth on the buckets or on the ratings right so we're going to say if a portfolio manager owns x amount of triple c all right what's the yield on their triple c bucket versus the yield on the market's triple c holdings right and try to because even if the ratings are wrong the market is going to be closer and yield is going to be one way of seeing if that is you know, are they over or underexposed to risk in a particular rating bucket? Um, I will say, though, that for what it's worth, AAA CLOs, there's never been a default in a AAA CLO. They've just been rock solid through every kind of um, market environment. So, which is impressive when you think about what, you know, a CDO did in uh, in 2008. So, um, we're, we don't, we're careful um, in how we look at that. And we try to use sort of market um, measures of risk as much or more than just pure credit ratings. For our audience, what is the difference between a CLO and a, and a CMO? Sure. Um, the difference is the underlying. So um, in a CLO, collateralized loan obligation, um, those are bank loans um, that have been pulled together and securitized, mostly um, bank debt, um, you know, leveraged loans. Um, the bank loan Morningstar category is, is another example of um, funds that own these things. Um, there are also commercial real estate CLOs or CRE CLOs, but those are um, less common. Uh, but the, the distinguishing characteristic is that both bank loans and CLOs pay a floating rate coupon. Um, with a CMO or a CDO, the underlying in those cases were mortgages. Um, and uh, But the structure, the actual, the pooled and securitized structure is the same that's been applied, you know, <laughs> everywhere and anywhere that it, it can be. Uh, so why is it that, the, I mean, is it the CMOs and the CDOs defaulted because the Fed was, was not able to fire hose funds to individuals? in 2008, the same way that the Fed was able to fire hose funds to corporations in more recent periods? So the collateral is secured by the Fed in a way that mortgages aren't? Or is that too simple? Um, I think that's a little bit too simple. I think the what we saw in with um, the CMO market in, in leading up to and into 2008 is that the underlying, the collateral is just a lot worse than it's ever been anywhere before since, from my understanding, right? So if you think about um, a mortgage, people can default, people can leave, right? Like you can just walk away from it. Um, With a bank loan, just if we're tying it back to the CLO example, bank loans are first lien debt. The corporation is a promise to pay. Like they're secured by something. These are all secured loans. So even though the structure you know, it's a three-letter word. The structure makes people nervous. The structure is the same. There are a lot of problems with the bank loan market now, um, where I, I wrote about during the um, during the summer. 
but the underlying is just, despite those concerns, the underlying in this case was, is just a lot stronger relative to what the underlying was um, in 2008. So the obviously the Fed is a lot. secured yeah, in a way. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, I mean, the Fed is certainly um, has a component of that, right? Because they were so much quicker to act um, this time around. Um, so I think we absolutely would have seen um, a lot more carnage in every kind of market if the Fed had not acted as quickly as they did. So given the landscape that you just kind of laid out for us on the credit side of things, when we think about the 6040 portfolio, right? This yeah. idea of having 60% of your assets in, in risk and equities and 40% fixed income. I'm finding more and more that advisors, that 40% is less about safety and more of like a title of safety. When that it's, it's credit that is very high risk because you, you want, you need some yield that to me ends up being less like a, a bond equity portfolio and more like an equity equity portfolio. Um, what are your thoughts on, on how people should think about credit in that sleeve or should it be its own sleeve with different types of uh, risk ratings? Yeah, I think you need to differentiate, investor would need to differentiate between credit risk, which is effectively equity risk, right? Or rate risk duration, um, which is going to hopefully um, act as a ballast or, or a counter cyclical to credit and equity risk. And so I think it's easy to, you know, buy the best performing core plus or multi-sector fund or so on. Um, and without realizing that maybe that was the best performing fund of the last 10 or 15 years, because it, its duration was underweight and it's got no duration or very little duration. And then it's just been massively overweight credit for the last 10 years. And that's why it's racked up such a good record. I think those strategies, especially in, in you know, above average managers can continue to do that and can continue to outperform. So I'm not going to paint a, you know, a, a black and white picture. Um, but I think you need to be aware of what those funds are offering you in terms of where are they getting their return from. Um, and so if you truly want 40% of the portfolio to act as a counter cyclical weight to the equity part of the portfolio, then I mean, treasuries and tips, right? And you know, long duration assets, something like that versus, all right, I'm, you know, I'm, my portfolio is large enough to, let's say, absorb a certain amount of losses, or even it's, it's okay if my fixed income part of my portfolio loses three or 4% this year, I'm okay with that because I know I'm going to catch three about in the same way. Like, how are you, if that's okay, and that might be fine, right? But investors just need to know that's what a certain 60, 40 portfolio is going to give them is you know, just muted equity risk, right? Or credit risk. Credit risk is equity risk light. So, what always um, was a mystery to me is, I mean, if you if you go back and so there's two components to this because um, one is sort of the benchmark or the ind indices of different credit sleeves, right? So AAA versus you know investment grade versus uh, high yield, etc. And so many papers have been written and we've done similar research internally about the fact that um, higher yielding or lower grade credit, when you adjust for default and recovery, so default probabilities and recovery expectations, well, recovery realizations through history, um, taking more credit risk has not been rewarded on a risk adjusted basis. In, that, in fact, 
I've, our own research shows that it hasn't been rewarded on an absolute basis over a very long time horizon, right? So in other words, investors would have been better off just investing in, in high-grade credit on a duration-adjusted basis um, after adjusting for defaults and recoveries than moving out the credit curve. So that's one dimension of this. The other dimension well, is Adam, are, are you are you talking about that in the in the context of the entire portfolio or just in the bond side? No, and on on the bond side. So on, oh, okay. on the fixed income Perfect. side. Exactly. Just want to yeah, just want to contextualize. Yeah, no, no, good good point. But the other side of that is that the credit indices may not be reflective of the opportunity in the space, right? So for example, Jake Economic constantly points out, and to be fair, I have not done research on this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But the fact that active management can play a higher value role on the credit side than on the equity side in terms of, of choosing better credits at, you know, at different credit tranches. So notwithstanding the fact that it hasn't paid to take credit risk, is there a better opportunity for high quality managers to take advantage of credit risk? on the fixed income side than we've observed on the equity side? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the answer to that is yes. So I would say that both of those things that you said are true, actually, right? So if you were to just look at the market returns of double B versus single B versus triple C, um, what you described in terms of not getting paid for taking on triple C or, or lower risk is accurate. That has been observed. Um, I would agree with that. At the same time, we also have seen that it's been very possible for certain, you know, let's say above average managers um, to find the opportunities within the triple C part of the market or single B non-rated or what have you um, to outperform even the sort of double B call it benchmark on absolute or risk adjusted returns. So there actually, there absolutely has been um, opportunity for that. I think part of that has to do with just the massive opportunity set relative to equities, right? So there's just more securities out there. Um, there are more inefficiencies than the equity market. So all of the conditions that let's say were in place for equity managers to outperform 30 or 40 years ago, they have not gone away in the right. credit market. That is hard to find. It's hard to, yeah. it's hard to contemplate. There's liquidity risks and waterfalls yeah. that are opportune going, yeah. you know, someone has to get out of a portfolio because it happens to be a tranche lower than it was. Yeah. Yeah. There's all sorts of weird nuances and niches within this market that are still ripe for, for managers to outperform. Now, the corollary is also true in the sense that it's still ripe for managers to book, to make a lot of mistakes and book massive underperformance. And so it's just an area where we've seen that active management just has, there's still a wider range of outcomes, right? Which means good and bad. Um, and so it's, it's- More dispersion. But can exactly. they, with, with the spread so tight, you know, I mean, yeah. it, it gets hard. Any any commentary there? I mean, it just seems so so minuscule for the effort. Um, yeah, um, yeah, it's rough. Um, the as an example, are a lot of high yield managers that we cover um, actually this year, especially in March and April, um, actually started buying investment grade corporates instead, right? Because that offered a better risk adjusted return than the high yield market did, um, and so. For managers who are able to do something like that versus, you know, just a um, uh, an index or a beta player or something like that, um, 
you know, it's strange to say that managers, high yield managers who bought investment grade outperformed other high yield managers who didn't, right? But that's kind of what happened um, in some cases. I think the problem is that um, it's, it gets to a certain point where you're just not getting paid to take the risk um, for spreads, right? So I think high yield spreads right now are 430 or so, and at least the yield on the high yield categories, 430 basis points plus or minus, um, you know, back out 2% for inflation. It's just not, um, at that point, what we really start to pay attention to is, are they bottom feeding? Are they going to, you know, stuff that end up not going to get paid? Or are they just telling their investors, hey, look, this is it, right? Like we can't do any better. And that needs to be said. Um, frankly, which is one of the things that we've been trying to do recently is that, you know, outside of bottom freeing credit or going way long duration, it's just, there's nothing good out there. Um, and you just kind of have to accept it. So, yeah. So we're at 5,000 year lows in interest rate. <laughs> so it's a, that's a bit of a headline. Um, and we have, so maybe just shifting gears just a touch, how might we think about in, in staying in the bond complex though? How might we think about hedging the bond portfolio to inflation it, beyond not not in a portfolio context, but just in the fixed income context? How might uh, you know someone approach it that way? And so, well, actually, you know, tips is one way. Certainly, hedges a, 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 an an explicit sort of CPI type of inflation. Anything else out there that investors can sort of use inside their portfolio if inflation is a concern for their forty? Yeah, that's inflation is a bond investor's nightmare, frankly. Um, and it's, I mean, the same way you would you would overcome the low yields is just higher, more risk, higher yields. Like, like if you can find, if you are confident that um, your high yield will last longer than inflation does, right? Like you're you're making an explicit sort of timing bet on the duration of inflation versus the duration of your asset, um, your higher yielding asset that people are going to do that, um, that's not something we would recommend. I think in the fixed income world, um, tips is really the only way outside of credit and taking on a higher yield to, you know, outpace or try to outrun inflation, um, which Con convertible debentures from from oil and gas and gold mining companies. <laughs> well, that's actually, that's where I was going to go, right? Because I remember back in 2018, there was such a hubbub about the fact that such a huge proportion of the high yield market was was related to the energy sector, yeah, right? right? And so it was, I guess, this sort of an indirect way, an indirect play on certain types mm -hmm. of inflation. If yep. um, if you want to get yeah. cute, it seems I mean, inefficient. But yeah. well, yeah, we're going to mention that too that yeah. the, the 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 sector breakdown of the various tranches of of debt as you went yes. through from. Yeah. But you you go hit it. Oh, well, no, I mean, that's that's completely accurate that they do change pretty dramatically um, in the industry composition from from rating tier to rating tier. I was going to mention with tips, though, is that um, I mean, we've done a lot of research. There was a piece in 2017 that we wrote um, because that was the 20 year anniversary of the tips market um, that analyzed their performance. And they did extremely well. They beat inflation. The problem is that so did every other asset over that 20 year period because there was no inflation. Um, but I think when you think about um, Tips specifically, um, I, I mentioned this before in a, in a comment in a um, in one of these a few weeks ago is that you know if you're buying first is the break-even rate, so the inflation expectations, and if you're um, if you buy at the inopportune time and inflation does not um, exceed the break-even rate, then you you kind of wasted your purchase. You would have been better off with nominal treasuries. At the same time, different parts of the tips market are correlated to different things. So 
the short-term tips market is more correlated to actual changes in, in published CPI. The problem is that changes in published CPI sort of month to month energy is a huge component of that. So like, are you really just correlated to energy versus the 30-year tips market, which is more correlated to actual changes in future expectations. So where you're buying at the tips curve, you're going to get different. I mean, it seems obvious in, in retrospect, right? But knowing that beforehand, it might help, at least with expectations, it, what you're getting out of that allocation. It seems like you could structure some kind of explicit inflation hedge credit portfolio by buying by collateralizing with rates or repo and layering on a CDS bet and a an inflation swap or something. Like if you really wanted to get, get cute, it just absolutely had to be in credit. It just seems like <laughs> why ways, are you using yeah. credit to, to yeah. hedge inflation risk, which which I think is but not not that I mean if you're forced to be in credit or like, you know, lots of compliance right. departments require forty yeah. percent of the portfolio yeah. for a, a balanced investor to be in credits or in, in fixed income. So it's a hundred percent legitimate question. Does prompt the question, is that a reasonable policy in, in any environment? Yeah, but, of but course. And, in, any, in this environment. But in a portfolio yeah. context, you can yeah. you can expand that and you can think about tips as a meaningful um, uh, con- contributor to that, but what, what about the the quadratic eyeball product? Do you, do you cover that? Do you have any comments on that and and, and how that might fit? Because that's kind of a unique and interesting, different thing. It is, yeah. So I will, um, I'll have to pass on specifics. I know my uh, many of my colleagues have met um, with that team, um, but I have not, unfortunately, and we don't cover it um, at this time. Okay. So I know it's it's gotten a lot of attention, and I. Like I said, we've we've had meetings um, with them, but I can't speak to it more than that. Yeah, no, that's fair. One thing I was I always like the the only thing I ever have really gravitated toward in, in credit is this fallen angels premium, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that it, you know there's a structural barrier to arbitrage for um, for credits that lose their investment grade status, right? So they get yep. downgraded below investment grade, and they are forced sales yeah, by insurance companies and pensions who, who need to maintain a portfolio above their a, a certain uh, cre- credit quality. Is that still a thing? Is that Do you still observe this fallen angels premium? And if so, are there any funds out there that, um, that target this and that you might recommend? Sure. Um, so it's definitely still a thing. Um, and it's um, high yield managers love when this happens um, for what it's worth, just because um, one thing that's been observed, and I think one of the reasons why fallen managers perform so well is that you think about a company that has been downgraded, but they were IG for some period of time, right? So they have um, levers that they can pull that a small high yield company that's, you know, got one, like it, maybe there's no equity in, in the high yield company and the IG company they've got equity cushion and so on, they can cut the dividend. There's typically more that a fallen angel can do to either stabilize or to get back into the IG market in one, two, three years versus a triple C or single B rated company that's just so far away, right? If they want to get, even if they can get to IG, it's 10 years in the making or something. So it's, they just have more that they can do. That's a really yeah. good point. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Typical bigger, typical, typically bigger capital structures. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's like I said, high yield managers kind of feast whenever this happens. Um, there are a lot, uh, a lot of high yield managers that we would recommend in terms of that have been successful doing.
doing that. Um, first one that a um, couple that come to mind would be um, the BlackRock High Yield Fund, uh, the PIMCO High Yield Fund, um, and the Artisan High Income Fund. Um, um, three of those are different. They're different flavors, right? So, for example, the Artisan Fund, um, which I cover, is a very concentrated, very non-traditional um, high yield fund, and it's the kind that going back to what we've talked about at the beginning, if I were to look at it at first, raises a whole lot of red flags in terms of concentration, triple C risk, and so on. Um, but it's one of those that once you start to dig in, the um, construction actually works in a lot of ways to offset those risks combined with um, really, really good security selection and research versus something like the PIMCO or the BlackRock funds, which are, um, or the PGM fund um, as well, which is gold rated. Those are all sort of more broad market traditional high yield funds but all of those managers will like i said feast on on fallen angels and really kind of um add them in size to their portfolios and, and capture a lot of um returns that way just, ge just, was a big one sorry yeah just just yeah. dovetailing on that whole concept yeah. and i see you have no idea is it the artisan fund is what it's called that was one of them yeah that I so it, yeah. is there an edge in credit to managers who run a reasonably sized, like I can just imagine PIMCO and BlackRock being the box in, well, at the moment, well, certainly PIMCO, the box on everything, uh, fixed income, and BlackRock being the box on everything in every asset class at the moment. Is there an advantage to managers who run a smaller portfolio or they're able able to take advantage of um, opportunities that the, just the gigantic funds, they may get a piece of, but it would be so small yeah. a contributor that it doesn't really matter. Is that, is that a criteria that investors might want to consider? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, we've seen it's, it's tricky to answer that though, or it's nuanced to answer that because um, Artisan is one example. Diamond Hill um, runs two um, funds as well, corporate credit and, and high yield that are all in the same sort of vein where it's smaller portfolios, um, concentrated positions look more like equity portfolios. And that's why I mentioned earlier, like to me, if I were to add one of these to my own portfolio, I would treat these as equity risk. Um, But it's, you absolutely can, because a lot of times credit coverage or credit due diligence is so times it's time onerous for the analysts that you think about, um, let's say a team that is a broad market fund and they have to cover everything. And the analyst has 60 names or 50 names on their list versus and a, a team that let's say they've got 10 or 15 or 12 or whatever. And it's just a lot more, you know, um, they can just dedicate a lot more time and they're not as rushed to cover everything coming to new issue market, like all this stuff or sitting on too many credit committees, right? Like they're, they're a credit analyst and a credit PM are pulled in so many different directions that anything that you can do to minimize that, um, can be beneficial right now. The other firms mentioned PGM, PIMCO, BlackRock, they've got so many bodies that they can do all of these things and still be good at it. Right. But you need to know like what, what game is your manager playing and are they good at it? Right. Because right. you can't, you just need to fit the, it's the, team it's the politics of portfolio management. Can they get it? Can, can the analyst exactly. get the idea, run up through the portfolio manager, get the approval to get the piece yeah. on the book? How, how flat is that management style? I mean, there's, there's a lot of that in professional portfolio management that, that yes. is, is a, um, an opportunity for excess return, I think. Yes. It's an interesting point. What about, um, how does, how does ESG, I, I wanted to come back, how does ESG play a role in, in the, in the bond market and in, in bond portfolios? Sure. So we, um, we recently, um, Morningstar recently came out with, um, a new ESG rating, which we call the ESG commitment level. Um, 
uh, which I will touch on in a second, but to answer your question specifically, um, what we've seen in, in ESG and fixed income is the most interesting part of it, um, in my opinion, in a ways, is the impact side of it, which is um, managers that are finding that are financing deals that have a very explicit ESG or impact investing goal, which could be funding um, uh, public housing or water rights or um, solar panels and so on. And so I find it more interesting at a personal level rather than just buying, like creating an equity screen and buying stuff that scores well, right? But you're still just buying the equity and maybe you're punishing or rewarding good or bad actors, right? But it's still just screening at the end of the day um, versus on the fixed income side, which is really the place to do it, this impact investing thing where you're targeting specific deals that have a very specific and measurable outcome, at least ideally, um, according to whatever ESG lines that you've laid out for Wrong. yourself. Yeah. So it's better to think about it as an expression of values than it is... Um, you know, trying to extract some kind of premium or, or um, uh, as, as an investment objective, it's more of a values objective than an investment objective. If you, and if you think about it properly, then, then you can do a better job. That. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that um, there aren't that many um, fixed income funds that are doing this impact investing. There's only a handful. I cover uh, two or three of them um, that they've actually outperformed their Peers, right? There has been a, a performance premium from these things, but I think the reason why is been correct. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of these things that they're buying are been smaller deals that not everybody is buying, or that they've had a hand in structuring, right? Because they're also often acting as the advisors on these deals, right? So suddenly you've got a you know deal flow pipeline, and not everybody's buying it, and you've got you know a nice premium that you can collector. But so I think, I think another yeah. indication of that too is is in the equity space, right? The, if you look at governance, clearly underperforming. Uh, you look at greenness, outperforming. Yeah. And so when you think about greenwashing and EVs and all of those types of things, all of a sudden, if you have an environmentally sensitive um, uh, ESG, you have this outperformance. And it, it, I, I think we have to, we, we would all concede in the short term, these are just sort of random effects. They're not necessarily um, direct results of better ESG. Um, or otherwise you would conclude that governance doesn't matter and, and it actually underperforms to have a better governance. So so you wouldn't you wouldn't make that conclusion, but it, it's uh, that's interesting. So in the yeah. category of ESG, I mean, is there general overlap when you put these different ESG funds together, is there like a Venn diagram of like 80% of values align and then they go off on this 20% on their own? Or are we talking about the Wild West where, you know, I'm a portfolio manager, I have certain values, I'm going to, to you know, provide water through these businesses and, and that gets piled in there along with a thousand other different views on ESG. Like what are we looking at? Yeah, uh, it it aligns pretty well. There, there's there's a lot of overlap, um, and I think a reason for that is at least if we're sticking in the the fixed income world, governance is actually not really a thing in fixed income ESG investing. For right, you're not you don't have any ownership of whatever you're buying. Uh, a lot of times, it's muni debt, for example, um, municipal debt that where a lot of this growth has come from, and so you immediately cut off the governance part of it, most of it, um, and a lot of the the social stuff as well is kind of cut at least by a third, maybe in half, um, just given the kind of deals and the kind of market that you're operating in. Um, so the only thing that's left is mostly environmental 
um, along with some social stuff. So you get stuff like uh, the PACE loans out in California, which were loans that set above a mortgage. They were first lien to the mortgage that people paid for to put the uh, solar panels on top of a house. Um, then those loans were packaged and securitized and sold. Um, they sit with the house. They don't sit with the owner, right? So a homeowner can take out this, these PACE loans make their house green and then leave and not be, they don't have to pay for it. It's tight. It's, so there's, there are a whole lot of, it is the wild west in that terms, right? Going back to the Adam, your comments from earlier, like new things coming out, like there's a whole lot of new stuff coming out in this, um, in this part of the market that fits the ESG criteria really well. You know, is it going to be a good investment or not? Who knows? Um, yeah, but it's been mostly this muni stuff along with, uh, um, this, these environmental projects that they've been financing. So one of the things, go ahead. Ed. Well, I was I was going to shift gears. So if you had something on this on this theme, nope. then no, Let's okay. Roll. Um, one one of the things that uh, certainly our team is uncomfortable taking equity risk or, or or capital structure risk in general, right? So one of the one of the areas of credit that I've always found more fascinating is the idea of relative value arbitrage. You've got you've got a company. You've got different. Um, securities that that have um, that are backed by different parts of the capital structure, and they're all priced. And so there's the opportunity. Maybe maybe a first lien is 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 overpriced relative to a to a second lien, or or an unsecured or, or relative to the equity tranche, or some kind of convertibles, whatever. Is that an area that you also cover? And if so, what? What opportunities are there there? And is that is it is it an attractive area for investors to look? And what kind of criteria would you use to evaluate the effectiveness of managers in that space? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yes and no. So I'll, we do look at managers who do that. The problem is that there isn't really much. Um, it's hard to tell who who is actually doing that versus who's doing it well and who is just saying they're doing that and kind of hiding behind a um, more of a macro approach, right? And the reason I, I caveat lead with all those caveats is that really good fixed income managers that are operating, whether it's in dedicated corporate credit or some more multi-sector sort of core um, offering as well, a lot of their, if they are outperforming, a lot of their outperformance and they're doing a good job of it is going to come from being able to, to move between those opportunities at relatively good times. I'm not talking about market timing specifically, but relative value of one sector versus another and then within each sector, okay, am I over or underweight securitized, for example, we'll use that. All right, now within securitized, what's attractive currently? The only thing that's left really is commercial mortgage, CMBS. All right, within CMBS, am I agency or non-agency? Am I conduit or single asset, single borrower? If I'm in one of those, am I triple B or double B, right? So for example, triple B minus CMBS risk right now, or the spread is between 450 and 500 or 550, right? Which for a triple B rated asset is right now is really attractive. Um, but the problem with trying to find a manager who does that well is that it's really hard to um, to identify the managers that are doing that. And then if they're doing it well, is it risk versus luck? Um, and the reason it's just, there's no sort of flag or easy way to say if managers that are doing that explicitly and only that within capital structures. There are a couple uh, of firms that try to do that really well. Thornburg comes to mind as one of them um, with a mixed success, I think, but they're one of the ones that more explicitly takes that type of approach. Um, yeah. 
just mathematically, yeah. it's just much harder to I to to sort skill from luck when yes. you yeah. don't have when you have almost no correlation with any other benchmark. Like the challenge with absolute return in general is that you can, especially if you've got infinite scope about what you can invest in long or short, the noise term dominates so profoundly over intermediate horizons that it's just impossible, which is why I think many institutions like to focus on some sort of benchmark oriented evaluation. So, cause, cause it's much easier, or at least you can identify skill versus luck more effectively in much shorter horizons. If you're, benchmarking against something that's highly correlated to your strategy relative to something that's completely uncorrelated. Well, you, so. you think you can. <laughs> no, no, I, I to- totally, totally agree, yes. Yeah. And there's lots of tricks that managers play in order to, yeah. to, to pretend or, or no, I get have it. optics yeah. that they look like it and stuff. I'm sure. being the curmudgeon. I get no, it. you're... <laughs> You're you're out curmudgeoning me, but we're 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 on exactly the same page. I totally agree. But that I love that space because at least conceptually, and I agree, it's it makes it much much harder to evaluate whether a manager has skill or it's just luck in a reasonable horizon. But but I like it because you're 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 definitionally removing all other sources of of risk other than your ability to distinguish yep. between different parts of the capital structure of a specific firm. So. All idiosyncratic risk is removed. All market risk is removed. And it's just literally, I'm going to do ca- this capital structure and how much skill can I extract from that, which, which appeals yeah. to me conceptually. The, the, the hard thing, um, I agree, um, and, and just to kind of to, you know, give my two cents is that the hard thing when it comes from our perspective for evaluating a firm like that is that, or a strategy, is that often those strategies, the hurdle rate that they're setting for themselves is LIBOR. Or LIBOR plus thirty or something, which like is appropriate, that. Like, totally, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's just, but that makes it harder to, you know, um, because there's no correlation. There's the, exactly. LIBOR has yeah, no yeah, ball, yeah. no so correlation. Therefore, there's no analysis. correlation, and therefore, yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's a pure yeah. return analysis, right? Yeah. It's a hurdle. Yeah, doesn't work. Yeah, it's all skill. That's the. <laughs> It that's, is. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. It's all skill plus it plus an error term that can't be correlated yeah, to any other error term. So therefore, it's all skill, both on the positive and negative side. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I mean, insofar uh, as yeah. alpha is intercept plus error term, yeah. which means it's it's it, we have no idea to determine which is which, right? So yeah, <laughs> here's nicely. That. See, there I'm an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> nice framing. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, well, well, there's a couple questions in here just to, to as we as we we're, we're on we're over an hour. But what what any thoughts on a couple a couple of questions here on A N G L Angel by Van Eck? Do you guys cover it? Any any um, insights uh, there? If you don't, it's fine. No, yeah, I'll have to pass on that one. We um, yep. and the reason why is that we split um, passive versus active manager research, and so that would fall under the passives team, which I do not. Yeah. But that, gotcha. that is an explicit Fallen Angels yes. index. Yeah. It's done really well. I yeah. follow the yeah. performance of it. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, any, any, and then there's one other, any views on CLOs and the growth of CLOs? I think we talked about that a little earlier. Yeah, that, but, one, but, that one I can speak to. Yeah. That was yeah. Um, um, my paper in May or article in May was touching on that a lot. So it's, it's been huge, right? Um, it's massive. Um, at this point, CLOs are over half or roughly half of the bank loan market in total, right? So you think about 
bank loans are now over a trillion um, market size. Half of that issuance roughly has gone to fee the CLO machine. Um, and if you think about that demand versus the supply that's been coming out of um, the private equity market in terms of issuing most, that's where most of this loan issuance has come from. And if you think about the fact that within the loan sector at this point, most loans are being issued are either covenant light, which means it's easier for issuers to, uh, or their, their PE sponsors to sort of, you know, wiggle within the deal um, or their um, loan only capital structures, right? So the big draw with a bank loan that we mentioned before is that they're first lien to anything below it. They're secured. Um, you know, they've got a, let's say a, a fixed rate bond below it unsecured and then the equity cushion below that, like a full capital structure. A lot of loans now are, that's it. It's just the loan because it's financing some PE deal. And so recovery rates are just, have come way down relative to where they were pre-2008. And so if what you're getting out of bank loans is recovery rates that are lower than they've ever been before, they're not offering the 60 to, or 80%, the average, long-term average is 80%, realized now it's closer to 60. Um, and you are getting something that's floating rate that can be called away at any time, right? There's no call protection on these things. It's just, the, I'm, I know, realize I'm talking about specifically bank loans now, but it's just horribly difficult to outperform in this sector for a dedicated bank loan manager. It's just not, it's really, it's going to be really tough, that, that sector. And I think that flows up to the CLO market, right? Obviously, you're getting doing away with some of this because you're dealing with a pool of securitized loans. And like I said before, AAA CLOs have never defaulted, knock on wood. Um, and so I think, but they've changed. yeah, no, it's, <laughs> who knows, right? Um, I mean, I think the, the default rate did spike coming out of March in CLOs. And so obviously there's risk there. These things are not perfect. I think all of the underlying complaints that I have about loans obviously flows up into the pools of, of CLOs. And so I think you're going to get, and this doesn't even get into the, um, the economics of CLOs where you've got, let's say second or third tier managers who are um, the loans that they're putting into their CLO are, are all coming from their one warehouse financier, whether it's JPM or, or some of these banks, right? There's a relationship here between their financer and the loans they're putting into the CLOs back to the CDO. I wonder how that gets by the board of directors. So anyway. there's, <laughs> um, like I said, there's, his, there's a lot of strengths to that market, but I, we're, we're have been pretty concerned about it for about a year. Yeah. All right, there you go. That was that's um, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's yes. the detail we were looking sell, for. Sell them all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's three Girl. letters ABCs. Sell them. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are, are there anything, Brian, that you're working on right now that's got you super excited or terrified? Is, is anything <laughs> anything in the in the in the bucket that's uh, you know sort of really making your 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 juices? sort of flow that you want to share? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's, it might be freezing the juices rather than making them flow, but yeah, that uh, too. That, that's perfect. Um, just the, I mean, the low, like as we've already talked about a lot, but the low, the low yield thing, um, we've been kind of beating the drum that people need to um, either accept that they're going to go out on the risk curve or accept lower returns to negative returns. Right. If we're talking about inflation overshooting 2%, um, it's going to cause a lot of problems. And if you are, if you are sticking within the fixed income box, um, trying to answer this question, it's going to be really difficult. Um, 
there's no no good answer um, but we were telling everybody that or at least reminding them that there's no magic bullet for these types of things right, so we, we have, do you do you do you cover preferred shares at all or anything like that or is it way out of your purview we do not yeah no yeah, yeah way out yeah I mean that's I, I do know I mean offhand that could be yeah. one approach right um, you're gonna get more than in some other places um, but yeah we don't um, if we cover them but they don't I don't, I don't yeah that's yeah yeah Awesome. Anything else, gentlemen? Did we ask about the um, preferred closed-end funds? Did I was I like distracted for two minutes and we? You we just talked about preferred funds and him not covering it, but yeah, I got. I had to pass on that one. Yeah. Okay. No worries. Yeah. Yep. Sorry, Vacek. Yeah. What, what about him? What, what about the, the 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 marijuana subloan industry? Like that's. <laughs> <laughs> The CBD crypto it's obviously ev crypto that's right that's, that's the, the new fund we're launching ev crypto fund <laughs> oh too good too good everyone's a little punch drunk on friday i love it right. uh any other thoughts guys i uh, mean we're, we're we're uh we're over the hour this was Covered a lot of ground a, a, yeah, yeah, a great deep dive into into the credit world, and and um, so so given given that there's no hope anywhere to reach for yield, or anytime you reach for yield, you're going to have your whole arm cut off. Um, <laughs> is there any any parting thoughts you can offer <laughs> as a for those who are forced more, more. to be in fixed income here? What segments should they be focused on right now? Sure, um, I think at this point you have to look at tips. Um, this came up a little bit earlier, I should have mentioned it before, is that if we think about that inflation hasn't overshot yet, um, part of that might be the, just simply the fact that we're underemployed right now, like the employment rate is so low. And so if you think about um, if the Fed keeps um, rates pegged low um, and then either stimulus or something happens right where and we roar back to full employment, like, yeah, employment. like that, yeah, um, that could have a huge overshooting um impact on inflation, or at least potentially, right? And so you've got to look at tips, I think, right now, even though um, the yields are not, um, you're not buying them for the, purely for the yield, right? Or at least the yield right now. You're buying you them opened the, the macro Pandora's box and Mike can't do it himself. He's like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> he's like coming over the, the microphone, <laughs> sticking his nose right up I against the I was waiting for someone camera. to talk about employment. <laughs> <laughs> Next, I'm going to bring up Kalecki and we're all going to get in trouble. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. all right yeah, yeah. All right. Awesome. thanks guys that was great yeah thank thanks, you brian man. see you wednesday yeah. yep have a good one <laughs> look there's the banner again there's the banner. god love you ani yeah. this is great <laughs> all right thanks guys have all a great right. weekend thanks for tuning in don't forget to subscribe yep click like leave a comment thank you for listening to the gestalt university podcast you will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media, 
And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.